Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today on Sojourner Truth, we bring you part three of the 2022 historic Mass Poor Peoples and Low Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington and to the polls. The event was organized by the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. We decided to bring you this series as many of you were not able to attend or listen to the live Pacifica coverage. I watched the beginning of this movement, starting with the Moral Mondays movement, organized by the Reverend William Barber II out of North Carolina. Also, having been trained in the civil rights and welfare rights movement, I was aware of the first Poor People's Campaign called for by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Also, as with the welfare rights movement, which I was also trained in, they influenced Dr. King to focus on poverty. After a few years of following the Moral Mondays movement and reporting on it as I could, that I heard that the Poor People's Campaign was being revived, initiated by Reverend Barber and Reverend Liz Theo Harris, I was keen to find out more. And fundamentally, it grew out of the Moral Mondays movement, as well as building on the first Poor People's Campaign. The Poor People's Campaign, in my view anyway, is the most vibrant and energetic social movement in the United States today. It purposefully doesn't stay in its own lane. It crosses the divides among movements across race, urban and rural, to build a fusion movement, focusing on the interlocking injustices of poverty, racism, the war economy, ecological devastation. It also focuses on what they refer to as the twisted moral narrative of religious nationalism. So in bringing you the program from the 2022 Poor People's Campaign event in Washington, D.C., we are bringing to you the Sojourner Truth listener, the opportunity for you to hear more from and learn about this growing mass movement, a movement that has already begun to have an impact in the United States and one that I think will be an historic movement. Poor People's Campaign is demanding that the 140 million poor and low income people in the United States from every race, creed, color, sexuality, and place are no longer ignored, dismissed, or pushed to the margins of this country's political, economic, and social agenda. The 2022 Assembly in Washington, D.C. brought together generations of people from diverse backgrounds, poor and low wealth people, state leaders, faith communities, community campaigners, unions, and partner and anchor organizations, all declaring their ongoing commitment to a moral movement to fully address poverty and low wealth from the bottom up. Today on Sojourner Truth, you will hear part three in our series of the Mass Poor Peoples and Low Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington and to the polls that took place in Washington, D.C. In part three of our coverage of the Mass Poor Peoples and Low Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington and to the polls, you will hear from a variety of speakers, including Reverend William Barber II, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. 
the writer, Phyllis Bennis. You'll hear from Planned Parenthood, those campaigning for immigration reform and prison reform organizers, faith leaders, and the testimonies from poor and low-income people from across the United States detailing their first-hand experience with the interlocking injustices infringement on women's rights and reproductive rights, generational poverty ensured by low-wage work and no income for those who are doing unwage caregiving work, and the war economy, militarism, and misallocation of resources, all of which are facilitated by what the Poor People's Campaign refers to as a distorted moral narrative of religious nationalism that needs to be reconstructed in order to end these oppressive injustices once and for all. Indeed, the Poor People's Campaign calls for a third reconstruction that is needed in the United States. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headline. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Voting has started in Russian-controlled regions of Ukraine on referendums to become part of Russia. The Kremlin proxy referendums are largely seen as Russia's annexations of eastern Donetsk and Luhansk regions and shams by Western nations. Ahead of the vote, Britain's Foreign Secretary James Cleverly said world leaders would not recognize the results. We, we recognize what Russia is attempting to do. We will never accept the outcome of these sham uh, referenda and that there is no legitimacy whatsoever for the Russian Federation or Vladimir Putin to define sovereign Ukrainian territory as part of Russia. The votes are being held in the Luhansk, Donetsk, Kherson, and partly Russian-controlled Zaporizhia regions today. Meanwhile, Ukrainian officials say they've exhumed 436 bodies from mass burial sites in Izium, the Kharkiv region, where Ukrainian soldiers recently reclaimed from Russia. 30 of those bodies, officials say, show signs of torture. A team of experts commissioned by the United Nations' top human rights body to look into rights violations in Ukraine says its initial investigation has turned up evidence of war crimes in the country following Russia's invasion nearly seven months ago. The experts mandated by the Human Rights Council earlier this year have so far focused on four regions, Kiev, Cherniv, Kharkiv, and Sumy. Presenting their most extensive findings so far, they cited testimonies by former detainees of beatings, electric shocks, and forced nudity in Russian detention facilities, and expressed grave concerns about executions in the four areas. The commission's chairman didn't specify who or which side in the war committed most of the alleged crimes. Youth activists have staged a coordinated global climate strike today to highlight their fears about the effects of global warming and demand more aid for poor countries hit hard by catastrophic climate change. Protests took place in the streets of Jakarta, India today. Actions were also held in Tokyo, Italy, and Berlin, where tens of thousands of people rallied, calling for the German government to establish a $100 billion fund for tackling climate change. Strike in the streets! 
Demonstrations were organized by Fridays for Future, the youth movement that took its cue from activist Greta Thunberg, who began protesting alone outside the Swedish parliament in 2018. In the U.S., lawmakers on Capitol Hill heard testimony about the mental health struggles that have been exacerbated by climate change on young people. Ellie Prickett Morgan has more. According to a survey done by Blue Shield of California, 75% of youth nationwide and 80% of youth in California have described feeling anxious, overwhelmed, or stressed due to climate change. Many youth, like Giselle Perez, co-author of H.R. 975, which advocates for greater mental health resources for youth experiencing climate disasters, understand that their anxiety is justified. We are anxious about the future. And this anxiety is warranted because today's children will be exposed on a, to an average of five times more disasters than their grandparents. We are facing a potential future of economic instability, mass migration, food insecurity, drought, and stronger and more destructive storms. According to the American Psychological Association, as climate-related disasters continue to increase, more youth will be directly affected by increasing rates of stress and trauma through interruptions in school, disruptions in routine, separation from caregivers due to evacuations and displacement, and parental stress after a disaster. Giselle and Madigan represent many youth across the country and the world who are working through their fears to try to fight climate change. North Bay Representative Mike Thompson introduced H.R. 975 earlier this spring. Currently, the resolution has 90 endorsements from Environmental Group and 40 congressional co-sponsors. From Oakland, for KPFA, I'm Ellie Prickett-Morgan. Hurricane Fiona has battered Bermuda as a Category 4 storm. Meanwhile, the island of Puerto Rico is still reeling. In the aftermath of Hurricane Fiona, President Joe Biden has promised the people of Puerto Rico the full force of the federal government is ready to help the island recover. More than 60 percent of power customers remained without electricity. A third of customers were without water. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. Those were our news headlines. And now we go to part three of our series covering the Mass Poor People and Low Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington and to the polls. Dr. King taught us that budgets can be moral documents. What we have heard today shows us that U.S. policies towards the poor budgets are also immoral. Responding to all these injustices, everyone is told there's no money to solve poverty. The 140 million poor people are told there's no money to end poverty, to provide health care and deal with the climate and jobs and education and all the things that we need. It's not true. It's a lie. There is money, but where is the money going? The money is going, 52 cents of every federal dollar is going to the Pentagon. The money is going to war. And next year, it's going to be $847 billion. That's a crime. That's a crime. It's a distortion of everything this country says that it stands for. And for what? War. What's it good for? Absolutely nothing but the cost. The wars don't make us safe, they kill people. They kill Afghans and Iraqis and Palestinians and Somalis and Libyans and Syrians and our U.S. soldiers as well. It doesn't make us safe. 
It militarizes our communities, militarizes our borders, and the wars show us why we need to cut the military budget, to cut the military budget. If there were no war in Afghanistan, we would have no leftover weapons that were in the streets of Ferguson when Mike Brown was shot down by police. If there was no war in Iraq, there would be millions of civilian Iraqis still alive. And if neither of those wars happened, we would have $6 trillion to take care of the poor That's in right. this country and around the world. We need to cut the military cut budget, it. fund people and the planet, not the Pentagon. Say it, fund people and the planet, not the Pentagon. Give it up for these sisters and brothers. How y'all doing? My name is Devon Marquis Ho. I'm from Delaware. Like the president, I was born in Pennsylvania. Like the last speaker, I know what pain is. I know what poverty is. I know what this plight means. My mom was pregnant with me in jail. I was down here at the urging of Farrakhan in D.C. back when we were here protesting justice or else. 10, 10, 15. Seven bloody years ago. Since then, there have been 5,000 fatal shootings by police law. There have been 1,053 people shot and killed by police just this past year. A family who I protested for just received close to $1 million in a settlement in Delaware where I'm from. Not from the FOP, not from police pensions. It wasn't a federal crime. These are the problems that must be addressed. Yes, sir. The same cop who shot him was serving after he killed a man my age in a wheelchair. He already had committed murder. Delaware has a Democratic governor, a Democratic Senate, a Democratic House, but we're actively working against poor and working class That's people right. by killing cannabis legislation, housing rights bills, environmental justice bills, and police reform. We need to elect better Democrats because the ones who have been representing U.S. people don't represent poor people. Thank you, my brother. God bless you. Thank you, Brother Hall. I come from a quote-unquote blue state, a state where currently Democrats control all the branches of our government. And in this time when Roe v. Wade is under threat and anti-LGBT legislation is spreading, there's a lot of talk of my state being a kind of haven. But let's be very clear. Policy violence perpetrated at the federal and state level is devastating the people of New York too. 58% of our children are poor and low income. That's 2.4 million kids in the state that is home to Wall Street. As a queer and trans person, my community is disproportionately poor and low income. And I'm sick and tired of politicians and corporations waving a rainbow flag and then actively undermining my and my family's and my neighbors' right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What I want as a trans person and a human being is to know that if I lost my job, my wife and my son and I would still be able to access health care. What I want is for my one-year-old to grow up with great public education, the ability to get a good living wage job and affordable housing. I want him and the generations after him to have a healthy planet and never to be sent off to war to kill other people's kids. I'm also an ordained minister, and my faith has taught me that we live in a world of abundance and that the well-being of the poor and dispossessed determines the well-being of all of us. Scarcity is a lie. 
Individualism is a lie. And that's why I'm with the Poor People's Campaign and we won't be silent anymore. We must first see ourselves as the participants and the recipients of the greater good and moral transformation that must take place in order for us to succeed. As Reverend Barber, my mentor and teacher, says, this is the third reconstruction. It's here. So you have to ask yourself, are you an architect of this reconstruction? Will you be willing to do the work to build a stronger foundation and core to America? A shift is taking place and proof of its existence resides within the presumed social contract that exists between a community, a nation, and the world. Sometimes we see and hear all these words and actions and it can seem like played out rhetoric. Am I my brother's keeper? It takes a village. Treat your neighbor as yourself. But listen again, those are breadcrumbs that keep us focused to the path of healing, justice, service, and love. I'm proud to be a part of the Poor People's Campaign and a supporter for greater social and financial justice. Thank you all for your story, your voice, and your extraordinary experience. Thank you for educating us on how to be human. Together, onward. My name is Vivian Henry. I'm from Minnesota. I'm one of the 1.8 million people in the state forced to live in poverty. I shouldn't have to be here today because poverty is a policy choice in the richest nation in the world. I battle four mental health challenges that have been extremely debilitating in most of my adult life. For the past seven years, I've had to battle many times for social security disability. I survive on just $585 a month from state general assistance and food stamps. If I didn't live in public housing, I would be homeless. General assistance wasn't raised during COVID and hasn't increased with inflation. Recently, I started donating plasma because I don't have enough money to meet my basic needs. This is immoral to be forced to live this way. The state of Minnesota has declared me disabled three times, but that doesn't automatically approve me for Social Security disability. This is asinine. How can I be declared disabled by the state only to have the federal government deny me benefits? I had breast cancer scare in 2018, and now I need a 3D mammogram and breast MRI each year for the rest of my life, but I fear losing my Medicaid due to the lack of consciousness of many politicians who could care less about whether I live or die. I'm here to say that if Congress can repeatedly afford to give corporate welfare to the rich, then Congress can afford universal health care for all so that people don't go bankrupt or are forced to use a GoFundMe to cover medical expenses. Scarcity is a massive lie. This is why we're here. We won't be silent anymore. My name is Nathan Fishman. I'm from stolen Lenape land, New Jersey. I feel a crushing and devastating sense of shame when I say out loud that I'm poor. At the same time, I share with 99% of our country and beyond the struggle for the right to live a simple life. My individual struggles include, like some before me, mental illness. I live on a fixed income. 
I'm diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and I have lived for nine and a half years in crowded and inhumane residential mental health programs. People in my life and in my community are consumed by pressures from overwhelming debts and risks of debt and thinking they have to compromise their values to maintain their job security or their social statuses. Personally meaningful to me is the fight of New Jersey mental health workers to unionize and in turn to provide more humane care and advocacy. The people of New Jersey are in winning bottom-up community building battles. We've won legislation that bans our facilities from holding immigrant detainees and legislation that makes it harder for fossil fuel plants to be built in our environmental justice communities. Now we fight for the Values Act, which will further protect immigrant rights, and we march Thursday, June 23rd in Trenton at 10.30 a.m. to get our state off of fossil fuels. It is a myth that there's a scarcity of resources preventing all people from living a simple and safe life with jobs, with justice, with clean air and climate justice, with peace and solidarity. We're all busting that myth, and we won't what? Be silent anymore. Give it up, my brother. Hello, I'm Beth Burke from Butte, Montana a copper mining town in the Rocky Mountains. I grew up in a very large family of 13 children, and we lived paycheck to paycheck. There were strikes every three years, some stretching many months without income. We didn't always have food, nor clothes for school, and the bro brutally cold Montana winters. When I was home with my family, I felt safe and secure. But at school or church, it was obvious we were different. Kids are cruel, and being poor made me a target for teasing and bullying. With so many growing children, we didn't always have clothes or shoes that fit. One day, I came home to find a big box of clothes on the porch, left by one of my mom's well-meaning friends. My sweet mother could not understand why my sisters and I did not want to wear the cast-offs and hand-me-downs from the very girls in school who taunted and tormented us for being poor. Food was another issue as a child. We always had something to eat, but it may not have been the most nutritious or delicious. Mama. I got through many school days without eating. I would cringe seeing my peers complaining about their lunches, or Shame. worse, throwing food away. As a poor child in a prosperous society, I felt devalued by the taunts, contributing to difficulty in school, difficulty socially, and low self-esteem, which continues to this day. The poverty we lived through growing up has impacted us in many ways. As adults, several of us still live in poverty and all that that entails. We struggle with the same issues my parents did 50 years ago. This is why I raise my voice. That's right. I will not be silenced. My name is Emily Johnson with the Mississippi Poor People's Campaign. I want to emphasize that exploitation does not have a color or a party. I'm here as a survivor of sex trafficking, formerly incarcerated, and I'm a low-wage worker. I had to live in a homeless shelter for over a year, not being due to not being able to afford housing after 
Commission. After release from jail, I was basically told to go be productive with no resources. I've been denied employment and housing on numerous occasions due to systemic racism. When I was blessed enough to get a minimum wage job at $7.25 an hour, SNAP benefits dropped me to $9 a month. I had no rights to health care. Victims of sexual violence need access to health care. Yeah. As I transitioned out of the shelter, I worked every day since the beginning of the pandemic. Working in a health care facility and being exposed to COVID repeatedly, I risked a livelihood of mine and my family's life trying to earn a living. I'm a single mother of four who works three jobs seven days a week, and I have for the last five years, and I barely make ends meet. I am Teach us, Emily. I have been faced with many challenges in my life due to a broken system in the state of Mississippi that has a long history of punishing the poor while rewarding the corrupt, wealthy class. I stand with the Poor People's Campaign because we are in desperate need of this third reconstruction. We must do more. We are coming for a fusion moral movement. Yeah. This is why I'm here, and we won't be silent. And we will move forward together. If you notice, in the country, they try to make out like poverty is just a black issue or a brown issue. And then they try to pit white against black. They say a state like Mississippi, they think it's going to automatically be a certain color. But this movement, you can't figure us out because we all together. Every community in this country has a story. I'm Bishop Bernardell Jefferson from Flint, Michigan. One of my grandchildren was an honor student in the third grade. He was chosen as an academic ambassador to go to D.C. to represent. But as he drank and bathed in the brown poison, our government said was safe for consumption. His grades plummeted to D's and F's, and he lost his opportunities. Stories like my grandson are tragically common here. Mothers miscarriage, babies die, people dying of legionnaires' disease. We pay one of the highest water bills in the United States of America. All in all, nearly 100,000 in our majority black city was contaminated with lead. Even now, the kids who were exposed are struggling in school. And eight years later, it's still broken. A wood-burning biomass near Flint Elementary School is causing pollution associated with high asthma rates. And as Ajax asphalt plant is currently under construction near a low majority black neighborhood right across the street from one housing project where one of my grandchildren live what if she can't breathe the air it isn't right that's right that we should have to fight so hard that's right simply for our children to have safe water and clean air clean air to breathe but all over this country we're fighting just the same how y'all doing my name is Beth Schaefer I'm with Raise Up Charleston Fight for 15 and a union I have been struggling to pay my bills since I've been working at 16 years old I work full-time at KFC and a second job at a gas station I work 64 hours a week seven days a week I 
am exhausted. My wages are so low that I'm facing eviction every month. Eviction would mean that me and my disabled father would be homeless. I know I'm not alone. There are so many people who work for billion dollar companies and still end up homeless. Why? Because the federal minimum wage is sentencing us to poverty. My home state of South Carolina is like the rest of the South and the Midwest. Our minimum wage has not gone up in 13 years. Our government is catering to corporate greed and us workers are paying the price and it's disproportionately right. black and brown workers especially women of color who are carrying the burden of a minimum wage in this country so we demand Man. that our government, that our government. Raise federal minimum wage to at least, to at least fifteen dollars an hour. We demand, we demand that our government, our government pass the Pro Act and make it easier for workers to form unions because we need a collective voice on our job. Low wage workers, we run this country. It's our That's labor right. that creates wealth. We have so much power than we realize when we organize. We have the power to change this country. So keep organizing and keep fighting. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't drop that and say that. Say low way. Low way. Worker. Worker. We run this country. We run this country. So act like it. Act like it. Vote like it. Vote like it. And refuse to be silent anymore. And refuse to be silent anymore. All right. of SEIU and the millions more fighting all across this country to join together in unions and stand with the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for a moral revival. And we stand with the Starbucks workers organizing all over the country. And in solidarity with the Memphis Seven, because we say we are here today on behalf of every worker fighting for unions for all, and every voter fighting for a government that works for all. Our votes this November are not a show of support. They are a demand, and we demand that every corporation and every elected official hear us. So now let me turn to Nikki Taylor from the Memphis 7 with Starbucks Workers United. All right, so I'm going to start with this slogan we just started using, and that's what Starbucks billions, Starbucks workers should not be poor people. Most of us are making under $15 an hour, and if that, in my eyes and everybody else, that is not a living wage. So therefore, we chose to organize, and that is reason number one as to why we organize. We are working under unsafe conditions, working with no protection between people throwing drinks at us, throwing punches at us, and calling us slurs every day. And this is why we organize. It takes a Starbucks to reach almost 30 years to make what our CEO makes in a year. And to me, that's ridiculous. And that is why we organize. Why we organize is because the union is going to give us the voice that we never had before. And therefore, we're going to stand up and fight for that voice. Our CEO has not stopped the wave as right now. We stand at 160 Starbucks stores unionized. Let me say that one more time. 160. Six months ago, it was zero. We have fought against their union busting to come in and fire me and six of my comrades. The store that they thought was going to lose, baby, we got that union. We won. So, I'm going to leave this.
there because I know we got one minute and I'm going to say true. It's like nobody else did. But anyway, uh, if you guys want to, please find us. We have a place you can sign so that you can support the Starbucks workers. And we're going to send you information on what's going on. You'll be able to keep up with them numbers. Because, baby, by next week, it's going to be 200. Say that. And the week after that, we're going for three. And I'm going to leave you with this. Let me rest. After I say no contract, I need y'all to say no coffee. Can we do that? No contract. No coffee. No contract. No coffee. No contract. No coffee. Thank you. Good afternoon to my brothers and sisters, all the tent workers and restaurant workers. Let me hear you holler. My name is Nataki Rose. I am a one fair wage leader at one fair wage. I worked as a restaurant worker for 14 years. I put up with sexual harassment and so much more in order to feed my son as a single mother. That's because of the sub-minimum wage for tip workers. After the emancipation, the restaurant industry wanted to hire new freely slaves and not pay them anything. The tent worker wage has gone up from zero after emancipation to only $2.13 an hour right now, today, in the United States, over 160 years later. With the pandemic, our tips went down and customer harassment went up. So millions of us have left the industry and we are leaving right now. We are thrilled that workers nationwide are realizing their worth and refusing to work unless they are getting one fair wage, a full livable wage. I have been in this movement for 10 years now. 10 years. And because of the great resignation, the great revolution, we are about to win. Right here in Washington, D.C. We are making one fair wage a reality. Putting Initiative 82 on the ballot this November. That's and right. it's going to pass. That's right. And then D.C. is going to lead the way to end the legacy of slavery and win one fair wage. Give it up for my dear sister. We Give it up for my planning. sister. We are planning to follow up in 25 states with our bill and our ballot initiative. It took over 160 years, but one fair wage, we are finally here. And all right, workers all right, deserve all right. that chance. I, you said one thing. I want you to say it again. Say, I've been fighting. I've been fighting. Ten years. Ten years. And we will win. And we will win. Give it up for my sister. We are going to take a short station break. Then we return. We continue with voices from the Mass Poor People's and Low Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington. Hi, this is Gloria Steinem. This is Joni Mitchell. This is Brother Cornell West, and you are listening to Sojourner Truth with host, my dear sister, Margaret Prescott. Money that I go for, baby. Brother, this one. 
This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you've missed any part of this hour from 10 this morning for 90 days after that, just go to kpfk.org, scroll down to archives, click on Sojourner Truth. You'll be able to hear the show in its entirety. And you could check out our website at sotrueradio.org. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. Today, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in the state of Mississippi. And internationally, we'd like to give a shout out to our listeners in Australia. We now turn our attention back to part three. Sojourner Truth bringing you voices from the program of the Poor People's Campaign 2022, Mass Poor People's and Low Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington and to the polls. Greetings, peace and blessing. I'm Millie Silva of 1199 UHE, the Purple People. We are here as part of a 70-bus delegation of healthcare workers from Massachusetts, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C., and Florida. And we stand with you, Bishop Barber, and everyone who is a part of the Poor People's Campaign on behalf of our President, George Gresham, and the 450,000 healthcare workers yeah. we represent in our union. We are here to declare we stand with each and every one of you who's organizing to end poverty in this country. The poverty where some of us have a living wage and others do not. The poverty where some of us have a home to live in and others of us are on the streets. The poverty of spirit that allows for systemic racism to exist instead of the love that we need for each and every one of us as humans. Sisters and brothers, family, we have to stand together yes, sir, because sister. this country is rich and it needs to share the wealth. There is a sickness in this country and as healthcare workers, we are looking for the cure. But as we learned in this pandemic, here is what we know. We are the ones to save ourselves. We are the cure. It is us. It is each and every one of us. Those of us who are here today and those of us who are here back at home. Because at 1199, we know an injury to one is an injury to all. And so we stand together in the spirit of 1199's founders and in those of us for the next generation, let's do this together. During this pandemic, we went through one of the toughest contract negotiations in all of our states. And our call to each other was this, to win this fight, we must unite. To win this, this fight, fight, we must unite. To and win this fight, we must unite. Bring on the testifier. As I say, hello, my name is Latonya Davis. I'm a proud member of the 1199 SCU Unit Healthcare Workers East. I'm a secretary in in Miami. I'm a, I'm a mother of three boys, 14, 18, 19, so you would know what my grocery bill must look like. My rent just went up $300. I guess it'll be just me and God trying to figure out oh, how no. I'm surviving. 
Honestly, I'm not sure how I would support my family. I've worked in the same hospital for 16 years. I'm still under $16. Many of my sisters and brothers all around Florida have it even worse than me. The hospital and nursing homes workers privileging life-saving care every single day, but they can't even afford their own health care insurance. It's getting to the point, guys, is that if we're not out here being together like this, we're not going to make it. So I'm just glad to see you guys out here. Let's keep on fighting. Let's keep, Let's on, keep fighting. on fighting. She is why we must fight. The United Electrical Radio Machine Workers of America, UE, is proud to be here at the Mass Poor People's and Low Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington and to the polls. Our union believes in organizing and mobilizing the working class. We believe in aggressive struggle. We believe in militancy, civil disobedience, and good trouble. We know that there is just one solution to poverty and inequality. Organize, organize, organize. Organize in the streets like we're doing here today. Organize to the ballot box like we will all be doing in November and organize in the workplace. Every workplace we see how poverty and systematic racism work together to exploit the working class and keep us in poverty. In every workplace, the boss tries to divide workers by race, by gender, by nationality, by sexual orientation in any way they can to keep us divided. But workers are fighting back. And I'm proud to say that the UE is organizing across all sectors of the working class. And Right to Work for Less North Carolina and Virginia collective bargaining for public sector workers is illegal. We've been organizing and successfully engaging in aggressive struggle, militancy, and group tr good trouble. Many of those workers are here today with us, and I want to introduce UE-150 member Bryce Carter from the North Carolina Public Service Workers Union. My name is Bryce Carter. I'm the Vice President of North Carolina Public Service Workers Union, UE Local 150. Serve on the National Executive Board and Steering Committee of the Southern Workers Assembly, member of Black Workers for Justice, and I'm also a street maintenance worker for the City of Greensboro. We know the biggest tool to fight against systemic, systemic poverty and racism can be unions. Down south, a region where nearly 6% of all black people live and work, we are in a fight for our lives to organize workers and to overturn Jim Crow era law that bans workers from collective bargaining. That's right. Certainly, North Carolina has some of the worst rep repressive anti-union laws. Collective bargaining is a critical expression of workers organized for power. Yeah. However, even without collective bargaining, our union has been able to raise the minimum wage for tens of thousands of workers up to and beyond $15 per hour. By organizing city workers across the state, we won $50 minimum wage in six largest cities. This was no easy task. We pushed leaders in council meetings, rallied workers in the streets, had to support the community, handed out flyers, flyers, held press conferences, made many phone calls to our members, meet conferred meetings, Thank you, my brother. We also won it all for all state employees. Just this spring, Thank we you, won a minimum wage you, of twenty dollars per hour for city workers in the city of Charlotte. Keep fighting. Thank, Thank you, my brother. Thank you, my brother. Next. You're not here. There she is. So you're not here. You're not here. Right now. Yes. I represent the cafeteria workers of the school district of Philadelphia, and we say enough is enough. Enough. Enough of more work, less pay. Enough of employees. Un
that's our word. Without us, there would be no hotels clean, no children fed, no deliveries being made. We are here to let them know we can shut them down. Yes, shut them down. Do you feel me? I'm here to talk about an unfair business practices 
poverty. I'm here to tell you that most of the majority of flight attendants are still women and getting underpaid, which that means that's discrimination in 2022. Talk to me, DC, if you hear me. We are the Association of Flight Attendants. We are your brothers and sisters, and we stand with you. Somebody say, which side are you on? I'm on the freedom side. How many of y'all on the freedom side? And on the justice side. We promised at the beginning of this that we would build a stage for impacted people to speak. Not everybody can. I see some of your signs. But you have to hear and love what you see happening today. We're modeling what you ought to do in your states and in your cities. Too often, people who have been like an organizational head, it's good to hear the head, but we need to hear the people. And that's why today nobody came to speak for people. The people speaking for themselves. We got Kelly Robinson and Patricia Wilson from Planned Parenthood. Hey everybody, I'm Kelly Robinson. I'm the executive director of Planned Parenthood Action Fund. I'm honored to be here. I'm even more honored to be the granddaughter of Retta Mae, Al, John, and Helen, the descendants of the first free black people in Iowa, the daughter of the enslaved people who survived the trip to America. I'm here because I'm holding fast to that promise of freedom that our ancestors fought for. They were fighting for our ability to control our own bodies, to determine our own futures, to be the architects of our own destinies. And that's the fight that we're fighting right now. Any day now, the Any Supreme day. Court is going to take away our constitutional right no. to abortion care. This isn't just about abortion. This is about the generations who have fought for our country to recognize our humanity, for us to be written into the Constitution, and they're trying to kick us out of it. Y'all, what I'm here to tell you is that we are proclaiming adamantly and defiantly that we will not go back. And y'all, I have my friend, my colleague, my fellow freedom fighter here with me, Patricia. She's a mom of two. She's a business owner from Baltimore, Maryland, and she's a storyteller for Planned Parenthood. Somebody shout, we will not go back. Hi, my name is Patricia Watson. Thank you, Kelly. Let's talk abortions. I've had two. I had my first when I was 18. I was totally in love, or so I thought. First time I had sex, boom, got pregnant. I was not ready to raise a child. I had no money. I had no sense. The second time I had abortion, I was in a very abusive relationship. At this point, I tried to get my tubes tied, but I was told no because I wasn't 40, even though I had two sons. The day I found out I was pregnant, I thought it'd be the last day of me living. I had to go and tell this monster that I was pregnant. I didn't know if he'd be joyful and think, all right, I got my grips in you now, or if he would kill me. I worried about my sons, finding financially and emotionally. I knew I couldn't support another child. Social services is hard to navigate. It's hard to get food stamps, hard to keep them, hard to get Section 8, hard to keep it, hard to get health insurance, and extremely hard. The gas is like $100 million a gallon. People forget all of that. They forget about after birth the cause. That's Abortion right. is just a thing people do. It's not a dirty thing, but at times it's necessary. We cannot be silent about the problem facing affordability and accessibility anymore. Silence is acceptance, and we cannot keep accepting it. We have to have these uncomfortable conversations. We we have to be vocal. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, neighbor. It's, wrong it's wrong to give a rapist, give a rapist more, control more control over a woman's body, woman's body. Than, that woman. than that woman. It's wrong, it's wrong. if a woman, would die that a woman would die to give death, to give death more power over her body power than, she has. than she has. And we won't be silent, won't be silent. anymore. To quote the late, great Benjamin Mays, I have only just a minute, only 60 seconds in it. Forced upon me, can't refuse it, didn't seek it, didn't choose it, but it's up to me to use it. I must suffer if I lose it. Give account if I abuse it, 
just a tiny little minute, but eternity is in it. My friends, eternity is in the minute we've been given. And although we like to say this is a movement, this is also our moment. When we think about the global climate crisis that threatens to push 100 million people into poverty by 2030, this is our moment. When we think about the fact that 68% of African Americans live within 30 miles of a polluting coal-fired power plant, this is our moment. And if this is our moment, if this is our movement, we must use it. For it together. Not one step back. For it together. Not one step back. All right. And now Greenpeace. Hello, sisters, brothers. My name is Tafari Gebre. I'm the chief program officer at Greenpeace, and I bring you greetings from our three million members. Sisters and brothers, our nation is grieving. We're seeing attacks on women's rights senseless acts of gun violence. Our planet is running out of patience with us. Extremist politicians have made it harder for brown and black people to cast their ballot. Our communities are suffocating under the weight of systemic racism and poverty while our elected leaders are stuffing their pockets. Today, we say no more. Today, we come here to fight back. Today, we say all of us or none of us. Can you say it with me? All of us or none of us. All of us or none of us. Power to all of us. Power to all of us. We're out of time. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. I'd like to thank the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. I'd also like to thank our board up, our engineer for today. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Y'all please stay well and safe.